Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have you guys with us here as well. Morning, Philip. Good morning, Brad. Bob. Good morning. Brian. Morning, Brad. We're, we've got several good topics lined up today. We're going to talk. Philip just got back a few weeks ago from traveling to the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, so he's going to tell us what he learned at that meeting, as well as follow up on some of our other topics where we talked about before how can we shorten that calving season? And then we've got a listener question that they came up as they were doing some bull checks this spring and had some with corkscrew penises. So what, what we want to know what we can do about that and what are the implications? So we'll ask Bob about that shortly. Before we get into those topics, I, I wanted to, we've introduced everybody else. I haven't introduced myself. So I have, my wife and I have four boys all the way from a freshman in college down to second grade. So as Bob mentioned, he has girls. He and I do have very different stories running around our house. Yeah, it seems like our household, uh, you know, the, the childhood teenage years are a little different when you've got all girls or all boys. Yeah. So we uh, just the day before you had prom a couple weeks ago. And, and I don't know if you started planning more than 24 hours in advance. Uh, yes, or, <laughs> I can guarantee you. Yes. Yeah. Brian, you've got a girl that's been to prom. Is that consistent? Uh, yeah. With Bob's story. Yes. Yes. We, we don't plan the last minute. No. So Grace, Grace, our producer, told me I, had, I should share a fun fact about myself. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but. I prefer my coffee cups seasoned, so you don't. You can rinse them out, but you don't need to spend a whole bunch of time washing them. And so, this has been something she's she's made fun of me before. But just to give you an idea of what it's like, I went to get my oil changed a couple of years ago, and I'm sitting there waiting to get my oil changed, and and I'm drinking coffee, and I forget, and I leave my cup in the oil change facility. At, I call him. He goes, yeah, yeah, we got your mug. So I come back, pick it up, and I go, and the guy that was changing oil said, I took a look at your mug, and I had to wash it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so so the oil-changing guy <clears throat> thought your coffee cup was gross. He thought it was too gross. Yeah, he's like, that is, that's too much. So so maybe there is such a thing as too much seasoning. I thought, I thought maybe they were going to think that it was full of oil. <laughs> Somebody had drained their oil into <laughs> your coffee cup. I, I think he may have wondered if that's what happened. That's why he cleaned it. So, uh, Philip, tell us, you went to the so the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, of which the Beef Cattle Institute is a member, and you represented us at this latest meeting. This has been going on for several years in developing indicators and metrics. Uh, a lot of good progress has been made. Tell us what you learned at this meeting. So the, the main um, thrust of this meeting was to release the, their goals. So like you said, they started back in like 2014, 2015, and they had to work through defining what sustainable beef means and they put together okay what kind of indicators and metrics are we going to use for each sector of the industry and how to, to gauge whether we're sustainable or not and how to gauge whether we're making progress and so they've, they've worked through all of that and then over the last year or two they have worked on putting together the goals for each of those indicators and what so w what is our targets of you know improvement and so that was the the bulk of this meeting was was re, um, releasing those targets and discussing those targets and what's the plan for implementing and achieving those targets so and it's a really cool group because it it covers all segments of the industry so everybody from a purebred producer all the way through to retailers which is a great mix and you get a lot of different opinions was there did you have good discussion among those groups there 
Yeah, we did. There was so there were several panels of this uh, discussion panels, and we had people on those panels all the way from cow calf producers in California to the um, guy for uh, the marketing guy for Yum Brands and and things like that. And they're talking about from their different aspects, what's it mean to talk to their customers about sustainability and and how do they try to communicate that information to their customers and what the beef industry is doing and and where we are and and that sort of stuff and and a lot of that is there's different customers there's different experience bases brian we've been a part of several of those conversations in the past and and obviously antibiotics antimicrobials some of that use comes up i know you do a lot of presentations relative to antimicrobial education those differ based on your audience whether you're talking to veterinarians producers consumers in some ways, yes, but in, in a lot of ways, no. So, I mean, obviously the, the technical level changes depending on who I'm talking to, but, I mean, kind of at the end of the day, we get down to a couple key points with when we talk about antimicrobials, if you want to use the word sustainability, it, it fits. Um, one is th- they are an expendable resource, and so we need to be careful with their use but they're also a valuable tool for protecting animal health. And so in, in those two points work kind of between two extremes of we just use them without any sort of caution or we don't ever use them at all. And, and I think that sustainability fits, but we, you know, the term antimicrobial stewardship comes up a lot. And so that's, for me, that's what stewardship is, was balancing those two points. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's, that applies to a lot of the different topics that you guys talked about. Well, and, and Brian, that's that's a key thing. So one of the interesting things that I learned from uh, some consumer marketing research that they shared there was, you know, from our perspective, we see all this stuff about methane, 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 and how bad cattle are for the planet and stuff like that. But when they surveyed consumers of what they think sustainability is and and what would what comes to mind when they think sustainability the number one thing by far and away is animal health and welfare and um so and so things like no antibiotics um, no hormones you know those kind of things is what come to the consumer's mind greenhouse gases is second but it's a distant second yeah and and i think some of those require some discussion because as you and i talked after you got back from your meeting it's about perspective and not all of the even livestock or animal production ag is similar, right? As you look across poultry or dairy or pigs or cattle, they're all different production systems. So the, the explanation is nuanced, mm-hmm. right? It's not a simple one size fits all, kind of like your antibiotics, right? It's not. Yeah, absolutely. The, the yes, no answer is easy. But the actual answer lies somewhere in between, and so you kind of got to navigate that a little bit. Well, well I think. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Philip. Well, I th- I think consumers get information from different groups about you know raising poultry in battery cages and you know swine in crates and that kind of stuff, and they don't understand the difference in those production systems. They just assume all livestock are raised the same way in cages, you know, and. S- so there's the beef industry from that perspective has a pretty good story to tell if we get that information out there. And I was going to make the exact same point with antimicrobial uses, you know, with a lot of poultry systems have gone to raised without antibiotics. But and, and again, the thinking that 
all production systems are the same doesn't apply. And so you, you really have to understand the, the why and how for the individual, I'll say sector, but really it's system um, to understand why we do use antibiotics in this particular case and we, we don't in this. Yep, and we've worked a lot with uh, some of the folks at the U.S. Roundtable. We will try to get some of them on, and we'll dive in a little bit to those metrics because I think a great discussion, and, and one of the take-homes you got from that meeting, Philip, was talking about kind of telling your story, talking about what you're doing, and just describing it because that's how you get to that nuanced answer is you have the ability to understand the production system and what's going on. I want to switch gears, and I want to give you guys a scenario and we've talked a lot about different technology. We've talked about breeding. But let's say I've got a cow-calf operation. It's commercial. I sell the calves at weaning, but my calving season has become very long. So I calve over a period. And in fact, across the country, this is pretty common, right? I calve over a period of 100 to 120 days. So it is about four months. And they're relatively evenly dispersed across that period. And I've heard some of the things you guys have said in the past. You want a relatively short calving season with most of them calving early. How do I get from where I am today, spread out 120 days, to a nice 60-day calving season with most of them calving in the first three weeks? Well, maybe let's talk about how we get to the point where we've kind of got a long, spread-out calving season. And, and you just basically pull out a calendar. You know, a calendar is 365 days, 12 months. And a pregnancy in a beef cow lasts... 283 days, a little over nine months. And then beef cows, while they're suckling their calf, will um, have about a 60 to 90 day period where they don't resume fertile cycles until they're past that point. So you start adding those up. Well, 283 plus 70 days or so on average, well, we're, at, we're almost to 365 days. So there is a reason that when we ask cows to calve at the same time each year so that they match the grass, the forage environment, that is something they can do, but there's not a lot of slack. There is, I mean, they need to be in good body condition so when they calve so that that postpartum, that post-calving infertility time isn't extended. It's going to be a couple of months. I just don't want it to be three months. Um, and so I don't want that to be extended because they're thin. If my bulls, we talk about bull fertility and how important that is, well, if the bulls are kind of subfertile, and so the cow came through and ovulated a nice fertile egg, but the bull failed to get her pregnant, well, then she's going to not have another chance for another 21 days. And so it's really easy to not calve every 365 days. It's not, I mean, it, it, it's only moderately hard to get them to do that. And that, that's what cows are designed to do is calve every 365 days. But it doesn't take very many mistakes for those cows to not make that goal. And then let me follow up on, so it doesn't take many mistakes. And if you make a mistake, it will follow them through year after year. So if I made a mistake when she was a four-year-old and it took her 400 days to have her next calf, then if she stays on 365, 365, 365, she's still late in the season. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to move groups of cows earlier every you know there's individuals individuals that calve earlier than they did last year but she's got a sister that calves a little bit later so the group tends to calve about when they calved last year well I'll add to that scenario bob you know it depends on too like when you're pulling that bull out if you don't pull the bull out until weaning and do your preg check there at weaning those cows don't show up open so you keep them and then they so they're just moving later and later into the into the calving season and so that that just 
perpetuates or, or lengthens right. that scenario that you were just talking about. So basically, what, some of the things we've talked about. So you, you want to know how do we shorten that calving season? Well, it, two, I've, I've, I've identified three things that we've talked about. Is First of all, their very first calving season, they need to calve early, right? Because what happens to them early follows them the rest of their life. So their very first calving season, they need to calve right when I want them to early in the calving season, which goes to heifer development and, and really restricting that first calf to be born early in the calving season. Then I already mentioned, well, make sure they're in good body condition so that post-calving infertility period isn't extended. So that good nutrition going into the calving season, breeding season. And then my bull management. Uh, first of all, making sure the bulls are fertile so that they can get cows pregnant in a timely manner. But then when do I take bulls out of the pasture to kind of avoid those really late calving? So those are the, those are the tools. I, I kind of laid out what the problem was. Well, the tools are good heifer development so they calve early for their first calf. Body condition monitoring and management so that they calve in good body condition. And then what do I do with the bulls? Let's, let's go with, first of all, make sure that they're fertile and ready to breed it's a, it's a little bit harder question of how long to leave them out there because I do want the cows to get pregnant early, but if they get pregnant late, that's probably better than being open, but I may want to sell them to someone else versus. So one of the questions is, is a short calving season the same thing as a short breeding season? And if I have a short breeding season, I will have a short calving season. I could have a longer breeding season, but then do some culling of late bred cows and put them in, and, and they have more value than an open cow typically. <laughs> so there might be some value there. Oh, now we're fighting against human nature because she did get pregnant, and now I have to have the discipline to sell her. So, so Brian, he's he's laid out the problems. Give me. So, so I asked him a question: How to solve this problem? And he said, "Yeah, let yeah, me you, tell you about the problem." Right. Which is and now you're very, going to very good, Bob. That was very. I'm passing good. it to now Brian. Now you're going to pass the buck over so here. So, Brian, right? can right. can you give me some solutions? Got a long calving season, need to fix it. So I, so my first answer is going to be, it, you can do it very extreme in a short period of time by basically calling a lot of cows. Right. You you can do that, and, and you would have a short you you would have a short calving season, right? I think somebody, Bell, somebody else better talk about the economics of doing that, right? And and you need bad. to you need to they're understand, bad. right? That's, that's probably not here, but I can tell yeah. you in broad terms they're bad. Yeah. So I guess my my first answer is going to be, if if that is your mindset, like you want to shorten your calving season, this is probably a multi year plan, right? It, it's in in what what I would propose, and probably what I think would make the most economic sense in, in the majority of situations is going to be trim off the tail end of that curve a little bit at a time every year. So that, you, so you kind of work your way into, um, and I think again, what Bob said is making sure if we're, you know, we have good heifer development, we have good nutrition at breeding. We've, if we've upped those things and we've taken care of our bulls, making sure they're fertile, making sure we have enough bull power, um, all of those things. And then we, Recently, we just talked about doing using other technologies like timed AI um, or just timed breed, right? Like so, a, a synchronized natural service program. Those are things that then I would start thinking about to start shortening things down. A after you've kind of 
worked on it for a few years to get yeah. it shorter because yeah none of those technologies really solve my problem right they, and, they that's, tend to be, and that's what we said right it, it's almost the rich get richer if i already have a pretty good breeding season those make it even better but they don't solve a a, a, a kind of a, and it's pretty typical to have a four month three month uh, plus calving season that's pretty evenly distributed you know so you don't have that front end loaded thing and, and I'm going to have to agree with Brian. I think you need to give yourself several years to work on it and gradually get it. And I'm saying that because in, in many situations, I just don't want to take the financial hit of a lot of open cows or selling a lot of late bred cows. Now, maybe certain times of the market cycle with cold cow prices or something like that, there may, there may be exceptions to that and where a make a big change this year might work. I just don't think that's typical. So let there's, me, cer- there's certain years if you had when we've had dry conditions in many part of the country you may need to be cutting your herd down for other reasons besides just that and that's a great time to make that shift and change and i i think brian you're spot on it has to be a multi-year process and i would say you have to fix the underlying problem bob outlined some of the underlying problems you have to fix those and if that's fixed i would ignore the cows and focus 90 percent of my hep effort on the heifers because yep. if i get those heifers coming in the herd you said it bob if she calves early and in fact there's some good work out of nebraska that would show if she calves in the first 21 days of the calving season her very her, first calf her very first calf compared to the second 21 days she stays in the herd longer and she weans enough extra weight over her lifetime to have produced an extra calf so mm-hmm. if she stays in the herd for nine calves she produced enough weight for 10 because she calved early that first calf. So I would focus all my effort on getting them bred early. Okay, so I've got, I've got a question. So we, we've, we've said, okay, these, these are things you can do. At what point would you consider two calving seasons? Like when, when that calving distribution gets wide, flat enough, mm-hmm. and, I, and I understand there's a lot of other questions about resource availability, but... If, let's say you have all that. At what point would you go, okay, now I'm looking at a spring and a fall? Here, let me give you another option that I actually like better. Okay. Is you get – I don't want to sell – and it's because I'm, I'm hesitant to pull bulls out of pastures and sell open cows when they could have gotten pregnant. But maybe pull bulls out for a little bit and then put them back in and create some fall calving cows, but generally sell them to someone – else that is in a because and again there are always exceptions but for many producers you've beef cattle production cow calf production is supposed to be relatively low labor compared you know dairy swine feedlot it's daily feeding daily care those kinds of things i want and and a lot of times in, in where i live you know cow raising is a part of a farming operation as well and so by having both a spring and a fall calving herd now i've just doubled all of my management all of my labor and that might be perfect for some people um, because i've also got maybe some cost containment i mean so it is an option that should be a tool in the toolbox to have both fall and spring calving herds but i'm not sure that fits a lot of people and just to be a little bit blunt here if we've had trouble managing the heifer development the cow nutrition and the bull management for one herd i'm not sure that telling them to have two herds is going to really be a good solution. So if you haven't fixed the underlying problem, you're still going to deal with it just twice a year. But I do like the idea of let's make these, if I'm going to make this change, 
let's make the, the, the cows as valuable as possible. And then maybe a focused breeding to get the open cows bred for a fall herd and then selling them to somebody, that might be a great way to kind of get some more value out of those cows that I want to cull because they're on the tail end of my distribution. Yeah, good, good points there, guys. And I think that's a great discussion. I do want to get into, we had a listener question, and the question was essentially as they were doing their breeding soundness exam on their bulls, they had a couple that failed the exam, and they had some different issues, but one of them was corkscrew penis. So tell me first, Bob, tell me what is a corkscrew penis, and then tell me a little bit about what are the potential causes, what are the implications? Well, I, I hope we have a mature audience here because there's differences in penises between different species. So a cat penis is different than a bull penis, which is different than a stallion penis, all right? And in bulls, they have a, a ligament that runs along the, the top side of the penis that is part of the extension process and things like that. And those other species that I mentioned, cats and stallions, don't have that, all right? And so if that ligament gets torn in some way, then what can happen is the, the penis itself can kind of take a rainbow shape or it can spiral, in which case it doesn't it doesn't so the, so the name is relatively descriptive. The, the name is descriptive. Penis. And let's just say that it doesn't do its job right if it's in that shape. Okay. And so we're talking about a, a problem with that ligament along the top. Now here's another challenge is when we use electroejaculation to get a semen sample, that process can cause the penis to spiral, and that's not that's not a problem in that that's different. Because in a normal breeding situation with a cow, that wouldn't happen. That's exactly right. The, the normal process of mating is different than when we do an electroejaculation. And so just because a bull has a spiral penis with electroejaculation does not mean that that's a reason to cull him. It would be a reason to watch him breed and make sure that we don't have any problems. And typically when I talk about that, that ligament along the top of the penis, a lot of times that's an older bull. It's just wear and tear. It could, I mean, there is probably somewhat of a genetic component of maybe some weakness to that um, ligament, but probably just wear and tear. So we see it more in older bulls. Um, there are some probably breeds or lines where it's maybe a little more common. But he doesn't pass a BSE. Oh, he doesn't pass a BSE. And, and there's technically a surgery that can fix that, but the, the likelihood of him re-injuring that is really high. And so it would take a pretty special situation, a really valuable bull, before we would want to even think about the surgery so basically he fails and it's probably not going to get better so long term long term implications he's he's probably going to leave the herd and i don't have to worry too much about other bulls catching this right or, right or having uh, it unless they have the same traumatic injury yep exactly right and and but the key is because i don't think that there is a valid or useful solution to this problem he's going to be cold um it's not going to get better and i don't have a good fix for it that's also why, though, if I see a spiral penis from an electroejaculation, I want to really reevaluate. I don't want to put him in the same category as a bull that has that spiral penis in a natural mating situation. That bull, natural mating situation, he needs to be called after an electroejaculation. Don't necessarily call him. Uh, reevaluate. But a lot of those decisions are going to depend on the value of that bull and whether he's worth. Do I want to take any chances? Do I want to go do further uh, evaluation? Be, be careful there, because if it's a young bull and he got a spiral penis with electroejaculation, I'm definitely going to take a chance on him. I think it's very unlikely that it's truly a problem. I think that's just just a problem with the way we do electroejaculation. 
So, but Obel. Obel, and I see him doing that in a natural setting. He's gone. One, 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 one yeah. strike, you're out. Okay. Part of the question was about is there is there an environmental component to this condition? He mentioned something about there was a wet season last year and foot problems and things like that. And, not that I've be, ever been taught or that I've heard people really investigate. Um, it's a fairly infrequent problem, and so it's really hard to detect patterns, but it doesn't really appear to be a pattern other than maybe genetics, and the genetics is not super strong. But if it's a traumatic injury and you have poor footing, you anything might. could happen. Yeah, anything can happen. Right? I mean, it doesn't mean it was necessarily wet weather, but you, you could have poor footing, and that could be an issue. So in younger bulls, you're much less concerned about this than in older bulls. Neither of them will pass their BSE. You have to do some follow-up. There's not a lot of good treatments, but certainly something to talk to your veterinarian about and not a lot that we can do to prevent it on the, yeah, on the that's really true. side. So the, the good thing is it's not that common. It's it's common enough that long-time long yeah. beef producers have had it happen in one of their bulls over time, but it's not frequent. Yeah, Excellent. Well, appreciate your insight on that, Bob. And as always, if you have other topics you'd like us to discuss or questions you'd like us to address on air, you can contact us on Twitter at the underscore BCI, or you can reach out to us by email and send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm-hmm.